bonjour à toutes et à tous. Merci d'être venus euh, aujourd'hui pour assister à Forum. Euh, on a déjà commencé le programme hier avec euh, un événement qui a eu lieu à l'ESAV, euh, l'École supérieure des arts visuels. Euh, et donc aujourd'hui, on continue le programme qui va se poursuivre aussi jusqu'à dimanche euh, avec une série de conférences, tables rondes, projections, débats euh, à la Mamounia. Mais on aura aussi ce soir un événement euh, au musée Yves Saint-Laurent avec une conférence de Vanina Géré sur l'artiste afro-américaine Cara Walker. Et également, euh, on intervient aussi dans un autre espace dans la ville qui s'appelle le 18, qui est un espace indépendant euh, dans lequel... Euh, dans lequel aura lieu le dernier événement de Forum. Donc avant de commencer, euh, je tenais euh, à remercier euh, The American Friends of the Art and of Africa Foundation pour son soutien à, à Forum. Euh, également toute l'équipe de la Foire 154, tous les participants euh, au programme de Forum qui nous ont fait l'honneur de venir et se déplacer euh, ici au Maroc pour euh, parler de leur travail et de leurs idées. Euh, je voulais aussi remercier en particulier Olivia Peterson, qui est euh, assistante curatoriale de Forum, pour euh, son aide euh, tout au long de ce processus. Donc, euh, le titre de Forum euh, est « Let's play something, let's play anything, let's play euh, ». Ce titre euh, fait référence à un poème de Ted Jones. Euh, et c'est comme un titre objet trouvé, en fait, qu'on a comme un titre trouvé, a, que j'ai voulu euh, utiliser pour Forum, particulièrement parce qu'il évoque euh, la poésie, la musique et, et une sorte de, de jeu et de, de liberté qui est très proche de Ted Jones, de sa vie en tant que surréaliste euh, africain-américain et, et tout ce qu'il a pu faire et créer. Donc, euh, sous le titre euh, « Let's play something, let's play anything, let's play », cette édition de 154 Forum transpose la vie et l'œuvre du surréaliste africain-américain, peintre, musicien de jazz et poète Ted Jones, qui est né en 1928 aux États-Unis et qui est mort en 2003 à Vancouver. Donc nous transposons euh, sa vie et son œuvre dans le contexte du Maroc, ici à Marrakech. Et Jones a vécu au Maroc, puis au Mali, à partir des années 60. Il n'a officiellement euh, rejoint le mouvement surréaliste qu'en 1963, avec la publication de son alphabet surréaliste qui était accompagné d'un collage intitulé euh, X d'après Malcolm, Malcolm X, qui était publié dans la revue La Brèche Action Surréaliste numéro 5, introduit par euh, l'écrivain néo-maroc Robert Benayoun, qui était lui aussi un surréaliste proche de Ted Jones. Ted Jones envisageait le surréalisme comme un mode de vie qui permettait d'allier le jazz à la vie quotidienne, le surréalisme était pour lui un outil légitime dans la lutte contre le racisme et le colonialisme. Donc en août 1925, euh, des artistes et des écrivains de la révolution surréaliste et Clarté aussi publient le manifeste « La révolution d'abord et toujours ». Bien que résolument ancré dans le contexte de la guerre du Rif au Maroc, le message de ce manifeste revêt une portée universelle. Une délivrance totale de l'ordre mondial actuel ne pourrait être achevée que par une dénonciation de l'hystérie inhérente au patriotisme et par une remise en cause radicale de l'hégémonie occidentale. Les soulèvements du RIF en 1925 portaient de nouvelles revendications imaginées par les communautés, construisant la possibilité d'un avenir meilleur. 
Cette même idée euh, se manifeste aussi dans les arts visuels à travers une fusion et un mélange d'entités qui peuvent paraître contradictoires au sein d'une même structure. Au sein des récits du surréalisme, il y avait, euh, au sein des récits du surréalisme, les personnes d'origine africaine ne devraient, ne devraient pas se résoudre à un statut minoritaire ou à un statut de personnes qui sont en dehors de l'histoire. Donc, à partir de ce postulat-là, Ted Jones nous pousse aussi à nous poser la question où et dans quelle direction pouvons-nous aller aujourd'hui Tout d'abord, en se posant cette question, on peut, on peut dire qu'on a besoin de nouveaux outils, de nouveaux amis, de nouveaux alliés, de nouvelles alliances, pour aussi nous permettre d'élaborer des nouvelles interprétations qui sont plus englobantes et qui nous permettent aussi de parler et d'analyser l'histoire de l'art, de l'intérieur, mais aussi de l'extérieur. Les, les anciennes interprétations excluaient beaucoup d'entre nous, notamment les personnes de couleur, en particulier d'Afrique et de la diaspora. On a été aussi maintenus en dehors de cette histoire, à l'extérieur. Nous cherchons à donner une nouvelle interprétation à des tendances historiques, mais aussi à des tendances contemporaines, qui se croisent directement ou indirectement avec la route du surréalisme. Une interprétation qui nous permet de prendre part, mais aussi de prendre part à l'histoire. Et ensuite, que pourrions-nous faire Nous suivrons nos convictions en l'affirmation de l'action, de la liberté et de l'imagination sur tous les fronts, par tous les moyens nécessaires. À travers une série de tables rondes, conférences, projections et performances, cette deuxième édition de 154 Forum cherchera à explorer et à sonder la participation étendue d'artistes, poètes, musiciens et cinéastes d'origine africaine au sein du mouvement surréaliste international. Nous chercherons aussi à réévaluer leurs contributions artistiques et politiques dans le contexte contemporain de Marrakech et du Maroc. Plutôt que d'ordonner un matériel à l'appui d'une théorie, 154 Forum créera un climat propice à l'éclosion de fleurs noires. Black Flower était un manifeste de Ted Jones et il envisageait ces fleurs noires comme, euh, comme il est décrit dans son manifeste surréaliste euh, du même nom, comme euh, un mouvement africain qui serait capable de renverser l'impérialisme à travers une imagerie poétique. Donc, la manière dont Forum va sonder toutes ces questions est vraiment dans une idée de, de jeu, de réexploration de matériel historique et de mise en perspective de tous ces récits du surréalisme en lien avec l'Afrique et ses diasporas. Aujourd'hui, à partir du Maroc, parce qu'il y a aussi une nécessité et une urgence à réévaluer l'histoire, notre histoire au Maroc, mais aussi à la mettre en perspective avec de multiples récits, et je vais terminer juste sur cette image euh, qui a été prise en fait à Tanger en 1962. Et on voit euh, Ted Jones euh, en fait le jour de son mariage avec euh, Grete Moljord. Et, euh, et donc tout à gauche, on voit le peintre marocain Ahmed Yacoubi avec sa compagne. Et on voit aussi Ted Jones, une amie et Grete Moljord. Ça, c'était 1962. Et ça, ça concorde aussi, comme Johanna Pavlik l'expliquera très bien, ça concorde aussi avec, avec son entrée officielle dans le mouvement surréaliste, avec ce magazine La Brèche numéro 5 que j'ai cité. Donc ça, c'était années 60 dans le contexte de Tanger au Maroc. Je vais passer la parole à Johanna Pavlik. Je vais introduire Johanna 
brièvement. Donc en fait, Johanna Pavlik va vous parler de l'engagement de Ted Jones vis-à-vis -vis du surréalisme et, et les ramifications qui excèdent le contexte de Paris. Et elle va vous montrer et vous expliquer aussi que Ted Jones était vraiment engagé dans des dialogues plus larges, transatlantiques, étaient liés à, à l'anticolonialisme et à la lutte contre le racisme. Donc elle va vous parler de la relation de Ted Jones au surréalisme, ce que, ça, ce que cela lui a apporté en tant qu'artiste et poète, et comment est-ce que ces perspectives euh, apportées aujourd'hui ici à Marrakech peuvent, peuvent permettre de le placer dans le, par rapport au, au mouvement surréaliste dans un, un discours contemporain. Donc Johanna Pavli, qui est euh, professeure d'histoire de l'art à l'université du Sussex, elle a publié beaucoup sur euh, l'art américain euh, d'après la guerre, mais aussi sur euh, euh, l'art africain... Euh, euh, Excusez-moi, je vais peut-être lire, je vais passer en anglais parce qu'elle va parler en anglais. Euh, Johanna Pavlik is lecturer in art history at the University of Sussex. She has published widely on post-war American art, but also on African diasporic art and literature, surrealism, uh, transnationalism, and also little magazines, other, uh, amongst other topics. Uh, Johanna taught in the Department of Art History at the University of Manchester from 2008 to 2014 collaborating with the Center for Study of Surrealism and its legacies on the project Surrealism and Queer Sexualities. Uh, she received the Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship in 2011 and the resulting monograph Remade in America Transnational Surrealism 1940-78 is forthcoming with uh, the University of California Press in 2020. Uh, Johanna Pavlik co-edits the online journal Papers of Surrealism and she's also the co-director of the doctoral research network uh, Savon, okay. <laughs> School of American Visual Art and Text. So I'll give the mic to Johanna and uh, thank you. All good, okay, thank you. Um, so I want to start by thanking Karima and Olivia, I can't see Olivia, oh hi Olivia, um, for their kind invitation to speak here and for all their careful organisation and planning. It really is a great honour and a privilege to be at the 154 Art Fair and to be speaking at an event dedicated to Ted Jones, an artist who I have worked on for a long time. I'd also like to extend my thanks to someone who isn't here and her name came up in the, the film screenings yesterday, um, Laura Corsiglia, who's Ted Jones's partner, who has generously shared her memories and material from her own archive with me and um, with Karima and Olivia. So thank you very much, Laura. Now, I've been researching Ted Jones for nearly a decade now and until relatively recently have been focusing on his work as a poet. I love puns and so naturally I was drawn to the poetry of Ted Jones. But recently, I've been turning my attention to his visual art practice, and this will be the focus of my talk today. And he's primarily known as a poet, as a beat poet, as a surrealist poet, uh, and much less has been said or written about his visual practice. So I'm trying to, um, to kind of shift the, um, the emphasis a little bit. And he originally trained as a painter, um, so that was, in a way, his first medium. So I'm interested in trying to, to recover his visual practice. Now, I'm going to start my talk in the 21st century, May 2009 to be exact, 
which was the date of the publication of D. Scott Miller's Afro-Surreal Manifesto, Black is the New Black. This was splashed over the front page of Miller's native San Francisco's alternative weekly newspaper, The Bay Guardian. Miller's manifesto, later released as a book, proclaimed that, in his words, right now, Afro-Surreal is the best description of the reactions, the genuflections, the twists and the unexpected turns this browning of white, straight, male Western civilization has produced. And he adds that, by way of an additional clarification, Afro-Surreal presupposes that beyond the visible world, there is an invisible world striving to manifest itself, and it is our job to uncover it. Now, he carefully distinguishes between Afro-Surrealism and Afro-Futurism, another contemporary example of Afro-diasporic cultures commingling with European avant-gardism. And Afro-Futurism, I think, is having a bit of a moment at the moment, think the film, the success of, of Black Panther, for instance. Um, so Miller suggests that the latter, Afrofuturism's interest in technology and the future, is somewhat inimical to Surrealism's insistence on freedom in the here and now. So Miller is saying, let's not wait and defer freedom and fulfilment. We should ask for it and make it happen right now. That's how he clarifies the difference between Afrofuturism and Afro-Surrealism. So Miller credits the writer and activist Amiri Baraka with coining the term Afro-Surreal in his 1974 introduction to the writer Henri Dumas's writing. And Miller traces a genealogy of writers, artists, performers, dancers, editors, directors, and thinkers who have pursued and developed Afro-Surrealism. These include the Afro-Cuban artist Wilfredo Lam, the Haitian-American Basquiat, who we saw um, last night, the musicians Cool Keith and Sun Ra, and Kara Walker, about whom uh, we will hear more during this forum, I think, later on um, this evening. In a later piece of writing, D. Scott Miller cites Ted Jones as an important figure in this canon of Afro-surrealists. However, he only mentions Jones in the context of his time in New York during the 1950s. This is rather curious, given that Jones's interest in surrealism both pre- and post-dated the 1950s, and his engagement with the movement was advanced and proclaimed from wherever he travelled. And he travelled far, all across North America, Canada, Europe and Africa, including Timbuktu, Marrakesh, Algiers, Dakar and Tangiers, where he occasionally lived but visited constantly over the course of his life. But I'm going to come back to this in a moment. D. Scott Miller's Afro-Surreal Manifesto ought to be read, whoops, wrong one, ought to be read as part of a contemporary recovery of the presence and contribution of Afro-diasporic artists, writers and activists to the transnational history of surrealism. Historian Robin D.G. Kelly and Chicago surrealist Franklin Rosemont's anthology of writing by black, brown and beige surrealists from around the globe filled a glaring gap in understandings of the movement. Not only does the anthology make available previously unpublished or untranslated work by diasporic surrealists, it also challenged the equation of surrealism with the Bretonian circle in the interwar years in Paris. The anthology constructs new geographies and histories for the movement, which remove fidelity to automatism or being on first-name terms with Breton as the criteria for membership or participation. Kelly's book Freedom Dreams, and you see the cover of that on the right, similarly traces the compatibility between what he terms the black radical tradition and surrealism. 
noting that what black intellectuals find in surrealism is actually, he writes, and these are his words, confirmation of what they already know. For them, it is more an act of recognition than revolutionary discovery. And he adds later that juxtaposing surrealism with black conceptions of liberation is no mere academic exercise. It is an injunction, a proposition, perhaps even a declaration of war. End quote. So this intersection between the black radical tradition and surrealism is enabled through a shared belief in the revolutionary power of humour, the dream, the imagination and play. Now, Ted Jones also shared this sense that surrealism might be the armour and ammunition required to survive and overcome life in a racist society. And indeed, what I want to talk about today is how these pronouncements by Kelly, Rosemont and Miller about surrealism's use to Afro-diasporic subjects were negotiated by Jones, who was coming of age in a context in which it was far from a given that surrealism had any kind of value to black artists and writers at all. Indeed, so occulted was Surrealism's identity in the immediate post-war years, following its eclipse by abstract expressionism in New York and the accompanying jingoistic excitement about this cultural coup, that Surrealism seemed to have limited appeal to anyone. I always think the fact that Jones first encounters Surrealism as a 10-year-old boy when he read Surrealist periodicals and reviews, amongst them La Révolution Surrealiste and Georges Bataille's document, which his aunt had retrieved from the rubbish bins of her white employers. So I think this rather effectively captures the status of Surrealism at this moment as something abjected and outmoded. So it wasn't quite on everybody's lips like it seems to be now, um, uh, Scott D. Miller and Kelly and Rosemont, um, it, you know, it was something that was in the rubbish bin, basically. So Ted Jones does a great deal to try and recover and, and recuperate surrealism and to argue for its use value to diasporic subjects at, at a moment when this was far from obvious, it was far from clear. Franz Fanon was one of the movement's most notorious detractors in the context of its racial politics. Writing about M. A. Césaire's notebook of a return to a native land of 1939, which Breton was hailing as a surrealist masterpiece, Fanon proclaimed that this was simply an instance of a francophone colonial subject mouthing colonial discourse. For Fanon, surrealism's essentializing approach to blackness could not be overcome or repurposed. Far from being incendiary in the mouths or on the canvases of black subjects, Fanon argued that diasporic surrealism merely reproduces Eurocentric imperialistic power relations. So we're going to look at this image. So let's look at this photo of Ted Jones taken in André Breton's study in 1966, which shows him in deep discussion with the ageing leader of the surrealist movement. I'm fascinated by the way that this photograph has been composed, and we're not entirely sure who took this image. Um, bisecting the two men is a sculpture, most likely from Oceania, one of Breton's extensive collection of what we might slightly uncomfortably call tribal artefacts. It stands as a reminder that Breton, like many other white Parisian avant-gardists, generated considerable economic and cultural capital from his taste in non-Western cultural production, which was only available to be admired in cosmopolitan European cities as a consequence of imperial networks of trade and occupation. The framing of the photograph invites reflection on what could be seen as an intractable primitivism within the mise-en-scene of surrealism, hindering its capacity to sponsor equal exchange between European and African diasporic proponents. 
So this uh, speech then explores how and why Jones extracts something of use from surrealism, how it becomes exempt from the critiques of white cultural and political power that were writ large in not only the anti-colonial writings of Fanon at mid-century, but also the radical politics of the black arts movement in America during the 1960s, with which Jones also aligned himself. Jones downplays the movement's investments in psychoanalysis and Marxism, and instead emphasizes its long-standing commitment to anti-colonial and anti-racist politics, which included, as Karima has mentioned already, support for um, the uprising in the Rif uh, in 1927, a move which galvanized the movement towards a more radical politics for the decades which followed. In addition, like Kelly, Miller and Rosemont, Jones frequently cited the active participation or contributions of black artists and writers before him, something which he suggests was unique to surrealism when compared to other European avant-garde's. These included the group of Martinican intellectuals centered around the publication Légitime de France, published in Paris in 1932, Suzanne and Aimé Césaire, and the legendary writer from Uruguay, Comte de Lautremont, whose blackness Jones insisted on. And you heard him yesterday in the, um, in the recording speak about the, the Comte de Lautremont. So let's have a look at some of Jones's work and examine it, examine it, my apologies, examine it with a view to thinking about how he makes it speak to the experiences of people other than white European men through a process of continuous recontextualization in the many locations in which he lived, stayed or worked. Jones grew up in Indiana, later moving to Kentucky, then Illinois, and then back to Indiana, where he gained a degree in fine arts in 1951. Soon after, he relocated to New York to become a painter, mixing with his surrealist idols such as Yves Tanguy and Salvador Dali, as well as abstract expressionist painters, including Franz Klein. And you can see this a rather fetching image of um, Ted Jones and his loft apartments on Four Astor Place in New York. Um, this functioned as a kind of studio space for him, and behind him are a tantalizing number of paintings, the vast um, number of which we, we don't know where they are. This is one of the frustrating things about working on Jones as a visual artist. The majority of his work um, has been sold or else lost. So I look at this picture and I think, look at the canvases, um, but we only know the whereabouts of, um, uh, of very few. So Jones exhibited in the 10th Street Cooperative Galleries and was a founding member of the Phoenix Gallery, at which he had his first one-man show titled Jazz Action Paintings. Um, so here you can see in the middle of a group photograph um, of the founding members of the Phoenix Gallery taken in 58 by the, the filmmaker Jack Smith. I'm not quite sure what he was doing there. Um, but Jones is centre and seems very much to be a, a vital presence um, within that cooperative, but he doesn't stay very long. Klaus Oldenburg, the, the kind of junk artist from the West Coast, recalls Jones being probably the most interesting character there, and that's, that's quite high praise because there were a lot of um, uh, exciting painters amongst that cooperative, um, but Jones feels a bit stifled um, through membership of that cooperative, so he leaves, and he actually goes on to found his own gallery called the Gallery Fantastique. Now, the whereabouts of Jones's paintings are, are, are not, many of them are not known, but we can see his painting Bird Lives at the de Young Gallery in San Francisco, um, a work produced to commemorate the death of his friend, roommate and hero, saxophonist Charlie Parker. And again, we heard about Charlie Parker in those performances yesterday. 
The painting testifies to Jones's gestural expressionist style at this moment, which was fused with the influence of jazz and the spoken word poetry scene in which Jones was a key participant. And by now, this is old news to us veterans of the forum. And beat writers such as Gregory Corso and Allen Ginsberg were close friends of Jones, who earned himself a reputation as a captivating performance poet during the late 1950s and early 60s in the village. Um, and here you can see him performing at the Café Bazaar in Greenwich Village, New York, in 58. And his parties were said to be legendary. Now, after leaving North America at the end of the 1950s, Jones divided his time between Tangiers, Timbuktu, and Europe. And it was in Paris on June the 6th, 1960, that he encountered André Breton by chance for the very first time at a bus stop. Between 1962 and 1969, he participated in the Parisian group's meetings, as well as involving himself as a central player in the Chicago group of surrealists. Jones's first publication, and Karima has mentioned this um, first appearance, um, the magazine La Breche in October 1963, presented him primarily as a collage artist, although his interest in jazz and poetry were mentioned as well. And his, um, his interest in painting is paused a bit here, and collage, I think, becomes his primary medium, and that's how um, he was introduced to the Francophone surrealist world in 63. Now, please excuse the really crummy um, reproduction of this image. It's literally me with my mobile phone taking the picture in the library. I hope you can make out enough of it to, to follow what I'm going to say. So it's worth pausing briefly on this collage titled X from his Alphabet Surreal series, which appeared in La Breche alongside his letters to Breton. The letters introduce him as, and I quote, the only authentic black surrealist who comes from the hip generation in America. And they also describe Breton as the true hipster of poetry. Jones's collage in La Breche is an incongruous illustration for his letter to Breton. Indeed, it is hard to imagine a more unlikely way to introduce a beat hip writer than a collage dominated by a 19th century depiction of Marie Antoinette on her way to the guillotine, a scene which seems conceptually as well as geographically and temporally remote from the beat or hipster's more familiar habitats such as the village Route 66 or the City Lights bookstore. And yet, the collage is not without contemporary historical reference. Elsewhere, Jones disclosed that the X references Malcolm X, who had taken up the symbol to replace the name of his ancestral slave master, Little. Malcolm X was something of a hero to Jones, and Jones was very pleased to have met him during the early 1960s. References to Malcolm X recur across Jones's published and unpublished work. Now, you'll, hopefully you can make out that multiple X's appear across this collage in La Breque. I don't know whether I've got a pointy thing on here, but you can see um, lots of them scattered around. And these, I think, further the function of the X in Malcolm X's imprimatur, which demands recognition of the absence of genealogical knowledge about his past. So the X's in Jones's collage similarly act as analogues for the effects of the enslavement of African people, instantiating the brutal cutting of millions of people from their home and their violent recontextualization in another location. The X's also act as multipliers of these traumas, gaps and losses. 
And in a longer reading of this collage, I explore other references to the middle passage, um, which I'm happy to go into during questions if required. But what I'm trying to argue now is that notions of Africa were never far away from Jones's practice. The language of surrealist collage provided a way for him to splice the formal innovations of modernism with a radical black politics, eschewing the perennial assumption that art by black artists at this moment would necessarily be political and would therefore be formally uninteresting. So I also want to pause on this collage novel that Jones publishes in 1961, uh, and in my view, one of his most extended and interesting workings through of surrealism's use to black artists. So The Hipsters is set in... Um, hi, welcome. No worries. Um, so The Hipsters is set in Greenwich Village, New York, the home, we are told, of, and these are um, Jones's words, of the hipster, hipnik, beat, beatnik, flip, flipnik, etc., where several thousand top people of all races, creeds and colours work, play and live in sometimes peace and sometimes harmony. So this is the first collage um, inside The Hipsters. Um, that's the section that I've just read. This is Jones setting the scene of the novel that follows. Um, adopting a pseudo-ethnographic gaze to label and document bohemian lifestyles in Greenwich Village, the narrator provides additional information about the scene. For instance, different kinds of village pads are revealed, complete with details about the rent and sanitation facilities as if to underscore the novel's invocation of a voyeuristic ethnographic gaze, Jones introduces tourists who arrive to gawk at the native hipsters, as well as later on some real estate developers who wish to gentrify the village and four emissaries on a Rockefeller Brothers grant, these are Jones's word, words, to study hipsterism and the dilemma of modern man. Now, the collaged images in the hipsters recall the Victoriana and melodrama of surrealist Max Ernst's collage novels, such as um, A Week of Kindness or The Woman with a Hundred Heads, um, which combined fragments from 19th century engravings, including images from scientific literature, medical textbooks, gothic romances, penny dreadfuls, and mail-order catalogues to uncanny effects. Now, in Jones's novel, the collages exist in tension with the text. So although the invocation of ethnographic objectivity in the text is largely satirical, it nonetheless sets up expectations that the visual would function in a documentary or evidential mode. So the text is located in the idiom of the contemporary moment, and its sociological categories and terms of reference are germane to the early 1960s in New York. However, the fragments that comprise the visual collaged images are drawn from locations geographically and temporally inconsistent with the text. So while the text is keen to parse apart, for instance, the differences between low, middle and high income hipster families, for instance, it is palpably unconcerned with the fact that the images depict hipsters located in what looks like the steppe, the plains, the tundra, a prairie, a cave or in a castle. So to give you some examples of this disjuncture. These are some images depicting um, different habitats of the, of the hipster. And the text kind of describes them in this rather deadpan way as though it were observing just Greenwich Village. And it doesn't seem to uh, kind of register or recognize that the images um, uh, depict locations far, far away, um, both temporally and, um, and spatially. 
And to give another example, so here it's saying uh, a cool hipster, an extra cool hipster, but it seems not to, to, to register um, that these hipsters are you know, from different times and different places. It's just completely unconcerned um, with uh, that kind of visual detail. Now, contemporary readers of the novel would have expected hipsters to look a very particular way. Splashes like this expose in Life magazine in 1959 um, that deciphered the studied look of the beatnik were a mainstay of the popular media's response to the upstart bohemians. And I don't know whether you can make this out, but this is a picture of a, of a bohemian hipster's pad, and there are little kind of numbers on each feature of the, this interior scene. There's a key at the bottom, and they disciple all these signifiers and codes of, um, of hipsterdom. So these tended to reduce the beatnik to a few cliched signifiers, the bongos, the beard, the turtleneck, and so on. And in this image, they include you know, a kind of um, a sleeping neglected child and um, neglected plants in the background. There's a particular kind of coffee pot, um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's quite a funny scene, and I, I'm pretty sure that Jones had seen this spread in Life magazine, and the hipsters is this um, kind of direct response to it. And actually, as an aside, Jones made some money from cashing in on such stereotyping. His friend, Fred McDarrah, put an advert in the press for Beatniks for Hire and was overwhelmed with requests for the conversation, wit, and charm of Beatniks, who were available for the fee of $40 a night, plus $5 extra per person, with additional charges for props like bongos, guitars, or candle-topped Chianti bottles. Um, and as you can see, Jones was an enthusiastic beatnik for hire. He wanted to make some money. Um, so Jones's novel, The Hipsters, confounds these expectations about how hipsters or beatniks look. I mean, it's perhaps a fairly facile point, and I don't want to labour it, but um, Jones is telling us that hipsters look like this, whereas the, the popular image of the hipsters in the press you know, was this. He's clearly trying to, to confound expectations. Now, the hipsters also engage broader problematic codifications of ethnic identity in contemporary accounts of the beat generation. These tended to acknowledge white beats appropriation from African-American culture, but often refused to include black subjects as participants in the movement. Um, and this is all the more ludicrous. The, the figure in the front of this Life magazine expose is actually reading a work by Bob Kaufman, uh, the Abominist Manifesto. But the article just doesn't mention the fact that there could be African-American and um, black beatniks. And we heard in the poem yesterday Jones's frustration that he and Bob Kaufman and Amiri Baraka were right there at the start, but that the press, the publishers, um, didn't seem to notice their, their, their presence. So I feel that this work is like that poem very much... Um, angry and protesting um, and complicating this erasure of um, black African-American artists. So erasure of black artists or black hipsters, while white artists and subcultures generate symbolic capital from proximity to them, plays into, broadly speaking, modernism's condition of possibility, inter-ethnic contact conducted on unequal terms. Jones refuses to erase hipsters of colour, in fact, they proliferate throughout the hipsters. The semiotic universe of the novel, it is unremarkable that there are African-American hipsters, Inuit hipsters, Mau Mau hipsters, and so on. So you can see an example here of hipsters very, very far away from Greenwich Village and looking very different to the hipsters in that Life magazine expose. So a hipster can be any race, creed, as the first pages of the novel argue. Um, 
just as an aside, the novel does not depict a completely post-racial, post-identitarian universe. Racism and ethnic difference are sometimes still operational at the level of narration, unless reflexively so are sexism and homophobia. But the various linguistic subcategories of hipsters are the only identity types with any consistent currency in the narrative. So Jones's letter to Breton in La Breche picks up on some of these themes. In particular, the idea that avant-garde identity might somehow transcend ethnic identity, even as some avant-garde identities might sometimes be parasitic on ethnic others. Jones's letter explains that, in his words, the white poets of the Beat Generation have borrowed the hipster attitude from black Americans, defining this further as their argo, comportment and jazz music, all of which embody a surrealist point of view. So in this complex web of cultural traffic described by Jones, ironically, surrealism was not available to white beat writers, save through their quasi-illegitimate possession of African-American or black cultural practices. Um, if white moderns, such as the beats, could be criticised for their appropriations from black Americans, the same, he implies, could not be said for surrealism. It could be presented as intrinsic to black culture rather than predatory on it. As a radical poetics in the service of a radical politics, Jones presented a version of surrealism which exceeded the boundaries of private property, ethnic identity, avant-garde coterie, or national literatures. And he never tired of proclaiming that it served as a valuable weapon for the exploited and oppressed, as Kelly and Miller would too much later on. Now, shortly after The Hipsters was published, Jones left for Tangiers, and his departure was reported in the African-American press. So this is the African... Oh, sorry, it's tiny. Um, the African-American weekly magazine Jet, um, which reports um, that Jones was leaving New York aboard a Yugoslav freighter in an act um, of what he termed self-exile. Um, and they quote Jones as saying that he will not return to North America until he has free passage across all its states, including Mississippi. So it's a bit of a protest um, in exile. Um, he's frustrated at the, the endemic racism and segregation in North America. And it's such a smiley, dapper picture um, of Jones down there in the front. Now, details about his time in North Africa are still emerging and in many instances have yet to be uncovered. And Karima and I were talking about um, the, the hope maybe one day that we'll discover this archive um, containing material about Ted Jones in Africa. But at the moment, we're having to sort of piece, um, piece things together. The academic literature on Jones tends to focus on his career in the United States or else to group his stays in Morocco, along with the many other American bohemians and avant-gardists who were gathering in Tangiers or Marrakesh during the 1960s. Um, Jones was certainly friendly with writers like Paul and Jane Bowles, as well as William Burroughs and Brian Geissen, who had established a community in Tangiers before or long before the arrival of celebrities such as the Rolling Stones, who visit Marrakesh in March 67. Paul Bowles reported the Stones' arrival with a mixture of amusement and disdain, noting that they were definitely rolling and very stoned. And he's quite keen to sort of differentiate between his community of writers and artists and then the, you know, the much later arrivals of the, the, um, the kind of the celebrities like the, the Stones. And Bowles notes that in 1964, along with, in his words, a contingent of beat poets, Jones was arrested by the police in Tangiers on a drugs bust. But unlike his friends, he was not deported um, because he was in possession of a ticket to Ghana. 
Um, and I think Jones's deeper engagement with North Africa perhaps sets him apart from some of the other American visitors to the region, whose interest did not survive the waning of the counterculture on the beat movement in the late 1960s. So Jones's travels took him across the continent to Mali, to Ghana, and to Algeria, amongst other places. Um, so here, these are from the images that you very kindly sent me, um, Karima, to look at. This is Jones um, and his then wife, Greet, um, in Fez in 61, 62. And, and this is Jones um, in Tangier, um, probably of the same year. I think that's the same trip. Now, Jones participated in the first World Festival of Negro Arts in Dakar, Senegal, in 1966, and he wrote to Langston Hughes about his plan to, in his words, present the first happening in Africa right there during the festival. Jones saw the jazz legend Archie Shepp invite some Tureg musicians to play along with him, reaffirming Jones's belief in, as he put it, jazz still being an African music. Jones also participated in the first Pan-African Cultural Festival in Algiers, in 1969, seven years after Algeria's independence, and was described by one reviewer as a compassionate black Parisian poet. So it's kind of interesting that, uh, it, according to some eyes, he was seen as a, a Parisian rather than as um, a, an American or African-American. As we have seen in work produced before he visited Africa, Jones's situation as an Afro-diasporic artist saw him reflect on themes which included slavery, the Middle Passage, and segregation. And his interest in these continued. But after his travels whoop, throughout Africa, his interest in indigenous cultural forms and practices intensified, as did statements of his affinity with the continent. He produced work in and about Morocco and the wider African continent throughout his life. For instance, in his collection of poems and collages, Aphrodisia of 1970, and there are several editions of this, um, only one of them has these amazing collages, which I'm going to show you in a second. And this um, collection of poems and collages was composed at the height of the Black Power movement when Pan-Africanism and ethnic separatism were at their peak. And again, you're going to have to overlook these really rubbish images. You can even see my finger in some of them, so please like, avert your eyes from that bit. Um, but these collages look a little bit different to the ones that were included in um, La Breche. So they continue to reference the Victoriana of Max Ernst's collage work, but compared with Jones's earlier collage practice, they include a wider variety of African cultural forms, as well as depictions of um, Jones himself. Um, now, composed in 1967 on the occasion of Breton's death, Jones's poem, The Statue of 1713, constitutes perhaps one of his most sustained reflections on surrealism's dialogue with Africa. And in this poem, the poet watches the construction of a statue of André Breton in the Western Saharan desert. It reads, The author of Naja is sculpted nude by five or fifteen Africans, fetish makers. And he goes on to describe in the poem, they work tirelessly, and this is a quote, as though immune to the cold desert night. And the statue is, the poem notes, taller than 42 giraffes' necks and wider than a street of fountain pens. And this statue repels the desert bandits who, and I quote, fear the truth of that poet. And remember from yesterday, poet and truth, they were um, uh, descriptions that, that cropped up all the time. And some of the fetish makers are the poem notes entrusted to translate the surrealist manifestos into Tamachek, thus enabling one to read them backwards as well as forwards. 
Now, the date 1713 of this memorialization of Breton is, of course, highly anachronistic. He'd not yet been born, uh, much less deceased, but it resembled the way that Breton signed his initials and was a moniker that Breton himself employed. If you think of 1713, it kind of looks like A, B, and Breton used to play around with um, that resemblance. So Jones is picking up on something um, that Breton did um, and, uh, and using it as a way of reflecting on um, Breton's kind of reach in uh, the African continent. The presentation of Breton as a kind of fetish object, as an icon for both European and African cultures, continues in other works. And although I think such a construction of Breton as this kind of sculpture or fetish object is rather satirical, it is underpinned nonetheless by a firm belief in the power and influence of the figure and his reach into and across cultures beyond France. So consider, for instance, this assemblage by Jones titled The White-Haired Revolver is Still Loaded from 67. And it's produced at the same time as that poem um, around the time that, um, that Breton died. So the title refers to a book by Breton called The White-Haired Revolver, which was published in 1932, a collection of poems that conveyed Breton's sense of disappointment at the what he saw as limited achievements of surrealism in its first eight years. Jones's assemblage is also a reflective work, but now that Breton is dead, seems intent on proving his impact rather than rue the lack thereof. The assemblage considers different memorialising practices as though testing different media, different belief systems and different histories for their suitability to accommodate the legend of André Breton. And I can't spend too long on this, but this you can see the 1713 on this cuff that's been taken from a shirt and Jones has written in Byro 1713, which looks a bit like André Breton, the date he's saying that this statue was um, uh, built to Breton in the uh, Sahara. And the title is written there, the white-haired revolver is still loaded, there's a key, there's this rather um, uh, haunting picture of Breton with no eyes, and then these teeth, and then what I'm going to talk about for the last five minutes is a big bit of hair. Have I got a point in thing? Yeah, look, um, a big bit of hair here, and I'm really interested, I've become very recently interested in Jones and hair. So... In a recent conversation with his partner, Laura Corsiglia, I discovered that Jones always used his own hair. And Laura described to me his fascination with the material, which he found to be intimately connected to the body, even when cut and stuck on paper. But Laura explained that he also saw hair as a way of referencing other non-Western cultural practices that utilised human hair or believe it to be invested with certain spiritual or magical powers. And please excuse me, I'm far from an expert um, in this field, but I noted several fascinating works in the fair yesterday that seem to explore this iconography of hair in African traditions. So consider this much later example that Laura sent to me last night. Um, which depicts what I understand to be, and apologies for the terrible pronunciation, but Nkizi Nkondi, I'm sure I've said it wrong, this figure here with the nails, um, associated predominantly with people of the Congo, collaged next to some dollar bills and some of Jones's hair, which you can see up there. Human hair features prominently in the art of Congolese people, and Jones's strategy seems to somehow write himself into the history and heritage of the region, although the inclusion of dollar bills is perhaps a reminder of how American capital mediates these relationships. So Jones has used hair during his practice in the 1960s, 
at the moment when the rallying cries black is beautiful amongst the civil rights and black power movements had brought about an interrogation of Caucasian standards of beauty and desirability. And these works are in his archive at the Bancroft Library um, at Berkeley, California. I have no idea whether they were ever exhibited or, or what their history is. Um, all I know is that they're kind of amazing, kind of Franz Klein meets Lorna Simpson. Um, so unstraightened Afro hair was worn as a symbol of defiance and racial pride. And here we see Jones exploring these issues. So we've got the kind of gestural painterly marks that look a little bit like um, the Franz Klein canvas. And then we've got these collage fragments, whoops, sorry, um, these collage fragments um, from presumably popular culture, print culture um, of uh, African-American women. And then this is a bit of Jones's hair and it's been um, enlarged there. And I think I have another one to show you. Yeah, here we go. And here we have Jones putting his hair round um, this uh, fragment of an of a African-American woman collage from the, the press. And here are Caucasian women um, on the right-hand side. Now, I think hair becomes this potent amalgam of different symbols and cultural genealogies. We know that Jones associated hair with the white-haired revolver of Breton, also with various African cultural forms and practices, as well as with the black arts movement in North America. And using his own hair is a way of connecting his body and his work to these very different traditions. Now, um, I think by way of a conclusion, I know I've got about two minutes left, by way of a conclusion, I'm just going to leave the last word to Ted Jones. So Laura sent me a lot of images last night, which I haven't really had a chance to digest, but because many of them relate to Jones's time here, um, either in Morocco um, or North Africa, I really wanted to show them to you. So um, hopefully you'll bear with me and, and let me leave the last word to Ted Jones. Um, so this is what Laura sent me, more cool work with, um, with Jones's hair. These are a little bit later, I think they're from, this is from 93, but you can see how he often plays around with, um, with dates. So we have this Velasquez painting, and he's put an image of, of Jimi Hendrix um, on the top. And then over here, these are actually fragments of the collage from the hipsters, and Jones has sort of um, uh, elaborated or embellished them by adding his, um, his own hair. Now, this is a work that he made while in Marrakesh in 1990, and Laura reminded me that um, although he may not have painted towards the, the very end of his life, he never ever stopped drawing. And apparently she has um, so many different kinds of flat surfaces in her collection covered with biro or pen and ink um, jottings of Jones. So here's one example that he made in Marrakesh. And I haven't really mentioned the rhino, but the rhino was Jones's um, spirit animal. And he got really annoyed because in the 50s, Dali kind of stole the rhino from, um, from Jones. And it's one of the reasons why he kind of professed to hate Dali ever since. But Jones never stops um, reproducing the, um, the rhino across his practice and across his body. So that's an example of something he made in Marrakesh. This too, um, you can see this references the Hotel Continental um, in Tangier, and it's an example of, um, it looks like just rubbing across the keyring, which is what it is, but those of you that are familiar with surrealism, you might know the tradition of frottage or um, grattage. Max Ernst was really into it. You kind of do it when you're in a state of distraction, when you haven't had much sleep, or when you're in one of those trances, and you just get a pen or a crayon and rub it over a surface. And this, for Ernst, was a kind of surrealist automatism. And I wonder whether Jones is, um, is referencing that long tradition of, um, of rubbing something um, in surrealism in this work.
I also just mentioned cadaver exquisite corpse. Um, those of you, I'm sure you know um, what they are, but just in case you don't, it's a, it's a kind of collaborative game um, that surrealists used to play. Bresson and the Parisian Circle um, would enjoy them, but so too would um, Laura Corsiglia, Ted Jones, and in this instance, the two kind of leaders of the Chicago group of surrealists. So someone draws a little bit, you fold over the top, you pass it over to the next person and they continue the drawing and nobody knows what each other has, um, has done. So you kind of get these, these marvelous, uncanny, um, uh, uh, uncanny images. Again, you can see the rhino um, uh, in the bottom left-hand corner and Laura and Ted Jones would um, produce large numbers of these in particular towards the end of Jones's life. And I think this is my last image. Um, this Laura sent to me again last night, so I haven't had much of a chance to think about it. But it's a photograph of Ted Jones when he's in Timbuktu of an artwork that he um, made there. So I need to obviously think about what this work of art um, is doing, but it certainly shows evidence of Jones embracing local um, uh, systems and traditions of uh, representation. So I think that's me done. Um, shall I ask for questions? Thank you so much. I hope that made some kind of sense to you all. Oh. Yes, if you have any questions, please uh, don't hesitate. And thank you so much for your right. talk. It's really amazing. And I also discover new elements myself. So it's very, very interesting. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate to, uh, to ask. Je peux parler en français parce que j'ai plus de facilité. Euh, voilà, euh, hier, on a assisté à une, une conférence avec quatre artistes marocains, jeunes artistes qui sont contemporains, et qui voudraient euh, se libérer de, leur, de, cette, de cette identité, ce problème d'identité. Et là, quand je vois, par exemple, toutes les visites, les visites les plus intéressantes qu'a euh, qu fait euh, Ted Jones au Maroc, c'était dans une période qui était, euh, que j'étudie, ce qui est mon, mon sujet d'étude en ce moment, qui est la période de, des indépendances. Juste à, euh, les années, fin années 50, début euh, 60-69, quand il y a ce festival des, des arts africains et, et toutes tout ces euh, à Tanger, l'effervescence et tout ça. Et, et c'est particulièrement, je, je, juste, je ne veux pas être longue, euh, mais euh, il s'est passé pendant cette période-là, non seulement. Euh, au Maroc, il y a eu euh, l'école de Casablanca qui a commencé à faire comme une sorte de, de révolution euh, à la Bauhaus. Et, et il y a eu l'école de Dakar, puis, puis l'école Zari, euh, euh, Zaria, euh, au Nigeria, au Zimbabwe, je ne sais plus, Bari aussi, avec Soyinka et tout ça. Vraiment, toutes ces, toutes ces, euh, tous ces groupes travailler pour se libérer de cette identité euh, vraiment qui a, qui, a, qui a coûté beaucoup. Par exemple, euh, même avec les surréalistes, même avec ces libertés-là, elles étaient pour, pour les Blancs, elles étaient pour les, 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 euh, les Européens. Et il y a eu cette, cette, ce problème d'identité. Et je suppose que 
pour euh, c'était une recherche de cette identité africaine, comment la, la retrouver. Et c'est très, très intéressant de voir comment les, les artistes d'avant-hier, ils, ils essaient de se débarrasser de ce problème d'identité. Ils, veulent, ils veulent, veulent se fondre dans... Dans, la, dans, dans le, la globalisation et profiter de leur art, profiter. Ils n'avaient pas ce souci euh, qu'avait euh, Ted Jones. Merci. So I'm, I'm, I'm just going to try to, to sum up what she, uh, she said. Actually, it's more like a commentary than a question. Uh, but she was explaining that uh, uh, during the, these days, she attended a, a conference uh, and there were like four uh, Moroccan artists. And she says that she was really uh, struck by the fact that they were also addressing this question of identity and the way in a way that they also wanted to liberate themselves from this burden of identity. And she, uh, Dunya also explained that, uh, uh, because she's also an art historian uh, from Morocco, she studied a lot the period of uh, independence and post-independence in the context of Morocco, specifically uh, Ecole de Casablanca, but also the, the context of Tangier. Uh, so she was also explaining that there is this historical legacy here. J'essaie de résumer, Dunia. There is this historical legacy in Morocco that we have in terms of the art history. Mm -hmm. But she says that also there is really a strong echo with the young generation of Moroccan contemporary artists, that they are really, she felt they are really in this drive of getting rid of this uh, let's say, burden of identity and being actually anchored in a more global or uh, global constellation and dialogue. So, and she also attended the event yesterday at ESAV and, uh, and she, was, uh, she was also mentioning that Ted Jones was also circulating in those spaces after the independence of Morocco, actually. So, so that's more or less the... It's like a full circle. Uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for your comment. And then when I was walking around the, um, I'm not an expert in the Moroccan context at all, so I feel like I might be speaking out of turn a little bit. But when I went to look around the, the fair yesterday, one thing that I found overwhelming was that um, the, the part in my paper where I kind of quote Fanon and that agony about um, can um, an Afro-diasporic artist engage with surrealism in such a way that doesn't you know, reproduce primitivist stereotypes and tropes, I kind of I had a feeling that that just felt like old news, like an, an old story somehow, that it wasn't something that contemporary artists were, um, were thinking through in quite the same way as they were in the 50s and 60s, which is where I based the majority of my papers. So if I've understood you correctly, I, 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 I agree. Um, Jones is an interesting artist because the, that kind of burden or problem of identity is um, he navigates being um, an African-American, being an Afro-diasporic artist, being an American artist. It depends where he is. And I find it so interesting. He's um, deeply uh, kind of committed to exploring the notion of, of blackness and his relationship to Africa, but at the same time, his relationship to surrealism and, uh, and to Paris. So um, on one level, I find it fascinating that in some of his work, he insists that um, a kind of commitment to a radical politics, to a politics of freedom, transcends um, certain kind of markers of identity. Um, and somehow that... Does that, does that make a bit of sense? So yeah, he's an interesting figure in, in, in that way. Mm -hmm. vous, avez saisi, vous avez saisi plus ou moins le, sa réponse. Euh, 
qu'il est vraiment dans cette constellation de liens, de contextes euh, historiques aussi. Ouais. Par exemple, au Nigeria, il y avait l'artiste euh, Ben Wanmu qui avait fait le portrait, en 1957, le portrait de la reine Elisabeth euh, d'Angleterre. Elle est venue dans son atelier, il a fait le, le portrait. Et il lui a donné, tout le monde a, a dit, il lui a donné des traits africains. Et lui, il était... Là, c'est un peu le rêve, c'est comme exactement dans le surréalisme. Et ça, ça a créé un, un, un... Il y avait beaucoup de... Alors, les, si vous voulez, les, les, les Africains s'imposaient par, par certaines particularités pour montrer qu'il y a une certaine... Ils ne sont pas obligés de suivre André Breton ou de suivre... Les Max Ernest ou, ou, ou les autres, ils, ils ont leur propre aussi surréalisme, leur propre euh, chose. C est, c est, je voulais juste contribuer. C'est pas. Ah non, non, mais je vais essayer de traduire. No, she, uh, just to, to sum up her second commentary, she was uh, uh, mentioning an anecdote of an artist from Nigeria. Can you tell the name again? Yeah, who actually made the portrait of uh, Queen Elizabeth, and uh, in the process of making the portrait, uh, he kind of Afri Africanized her, let's say, or there was this transposition of two identities. So this this process goes on both ways. That's what you try to say that there is a circulation, and the transposition of identities, and that there's something hybrid and uh, mm -hmm. and influx. Yeah. Is there any other questions or comments you would like to make? No? Maybe yeah, I just have like one question because we ha also haven't talked about that yet uh, in the process. Uh, I think it's really fascinating just maybe speaking from here in Morocco, the 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 process of researching also the archives because you're you're also an art historian i'm really curious uh, this line of uh, because as you understand also with ted jones there's so many lines of research there is so many locations also so many different interlocutors i'm really wondering also the the material which is more specifically related to morocco is it like something a line of research you would like to develop because you also mentioned your Uh, recent research around the, the visual art production of Ted Jones uh, in the context of the US. So would that be like another, uh, let's say, line of research or inquiry you would be interested in? It could be, Karima. I would have to do a whole lot of just getting up to speed with understanding the mm -hmm. the, um, the context of um, Morocco. And yeah. so I would need to become a, an art historian with different expertise in order yeah. to do that properly. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, my My field of inquiry is um, is North America, um, and that's where um, the the majority of my research is based. In, in short, this interest in Ted Jones comes out of a broader project mm -hmm. on um, surrealism's politicization by North American um, artists and activists and writers. So. Um, 
I'm trying to look at how artists um, tried to to remake surrealism so that it became something other than a kind of a funny uh, avant-garde movement that was interested in the dream and, you know, dripping clocks. So my interest in Jones comes out of that broader project. So I would love to do some more research, Karima, and this material that's coming out from Laura is like such a carrot, you know, to um, to, to entice someone to do that. But um, I, I would need to become a, a more of an expert than I am in, um, in, in the context here it's not that it can't be done but it's not something that is um is about to happen Karima yeah. even though the material it looks fascinating uh if there is uh, no more questions yeah so thank you so much Joanna for your talk and no presentation problem. thank you thank you <laughs> thank you thank you <laughs>